All right, let's uh, let's get started. We're in the middle of Exodus chapter seven right now. So um, Moses is eighty years old. He's gone back to Egypt with his brother Aaron, and when Moses and Aaron ask Pharaoh for permission to take their people on a three-day journey into the wilderness to sacrifice to the Lord, Pharaoh initially refuses. And not only does he refuse their request, but he ends up punishing the Israelites as a result. And he says, all right, you have been making bricks. Now you're going to make bricks without straw. We used to give you the straw. Now you're going to have to make the bricks and run around and find the straw to make the bricks. And when they are having, struggling to make their quota, then they start whipping the people. They flog the people. And so then the Israelites are very upset about this turn of events. And they end up blaming Moses and Aaron for their situation getting worse. Um, Moses and Aaron go before Pharaoh. Aaron throws his rod down as a sign that this is from God. It turns into a snake uh, somehow or other. The sorcerers, the magicians who were associated with Pharaoh do the same thing, but Aaron's rod swallows up the other ones. And Pharaoh's heart is still hard, and he refuses to let Israel go. So we'll pick up the story right there. Now here's where we begin the first of the famous ten plagues in the book of Exodus. And I'll give you the list of the ten plagues in order. Because we're going to be going through these. We'll be just starting on that uh, today. The first one is water to blood. The second one is frogs. The third one is either gnats or lice, depending on the translation. The fourth one is flies, or sometimes called dog flies. Um, Then the fifth one is cattle disease. The sixth one is boils. The seventh one is hail, or perhaps hail with fire mixed in with it. And the eighth is locust, the plague of locusts, famous plague of locusts. The ninth is darkness, and a tenth, of course, is the ultimate plague, the plague of the Passover, the death of the firstborn. So these are the the ten plagues of Exodus. And so we're going to pick up here, starting with the first of the ten plagues. Let's read in Exodus chapter 7. And I'm reading from Orthodox Study Bible, which is based on Septuagint, but I think most Bibles will say almost exactly the same thing. In Exodus chapter 7, starting in verse 14, and I'm going to read down through verse 25. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh early in the morning when he goes to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. You shall take in your hand the rod that turned into a serpent. Then you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go to serve me in the desert. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the water in the river with a rod in my hand, and it shall be turned to blood. Then the fish in the river shall die, the river shall stink, the Egyptians will be unable to drink water from the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron your brother, Take the rod in your hand, stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the rivers, the canals, the ponds, and all the standing water, so they may become blood. There shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in vessels of wood and of stone. So Moses and Aaron did so, as the Lord commanded them. Aaron lifted his hand with the rod and struck the water in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants. Then all the waters of the river were turned to blood. The fish in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink water from the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the sorcerers of Egypt did the same with their sorceries, and Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not heed them, as the Lord said. Pharaoh then turned and went to his house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink water from the river. Then seven days passed after the Lord struck the river. So 
Um, basic storyline, Moses is told by the Lord, rise up early in the morning, go to the bank of the Nile River and meet Pharaoh there. When he comes down there, uh, Moses is to warn Pharaoh that says he's been unwilling to listen to the Lord, the, that, uh, that the river will be struck with the staff and all the water will be turned to blood. The fish will die, the river will stink, and the water will be undrinkable. Uh, this will be the case for all the surface water in Egypt. So this is the water in the river, the irrigation canals, uh, and ditches, and the standing water in, in pools in different places. It will all be turned to blood, and even to the water that's in the wood and stone containers will be turned to blood. So Moses, uh, the, the river is struck with the staff in the sight of Pharaoh, and everything happens just as it, we were told it would happen. However, somehow the sorcerers of Pharaoh were able to do the same thing, just like they were able to turn their, throw their staffs down and have them turn into snakes. Somehow they can turn water into blood or something appearing that way also. So whether again, whether this is sorcery, the occult, or... And they're illusionists, I don't know, but uh, they, they were able to duplicate the miracle in some fashion. So, a um, couple of questions. So, you have the ten plagues, and uh, maybe you never thought about this question before, but why, of all the ways that God could strike the Egyptians, why would he choose this as the first plague? To turn all the water into blood turn the water of the river into blood. Why would he do this first? You know, just, just, it's just a question. Any, any guesses or ideas? You think of all the ways that God could have scared the Egyptians to wake them up. Why would he start with this particular sign? Any guesses? Yes. Because the Egyptians relied on their water for drinking and stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, if you want to, this is in the desert. So if, if you want to hit someone where it hurts, if you're in the desert, cutting off their water supply, it doesn't get more threatening and personal than that. I mean, how long can you go without water? So I mean, this is the whole civilization is based around water. Um, so that, 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 that makes sense. He's, he's, he's hitting them right where they're going to feel it immediately. So I think that's that's one answer that makes a lot of sense. But there's there's some other possible answers too, um, and this is there's one that's in that's it's an answer to this question, and it's, it's not just one answer, but I think there's there's maybe two or three answers. But one that I found fascinating is in a book called The Wisdom of Solomon. It's also called the Book of Wisdom. Now some in some in the room here will have that book in their Bibles, and some won't have it in their Bibles. It's in the uh, uh, it's in the it's in the Old Testament that's used by the Catholics and the Orthodox, but it's not in uh, generally it's not in the modern Protestant Old Testaments in their Bibles. And uh, but actually it was included in the King James version. The original King James was in there, and it was in there up until the late 1800s. I have old family Bibles that still have it in there. So uh, it's only been fairly recently that the Protestants removed it from their scriptures within the last hundred years or so. Uh, so uh, uh, and, and if you want any more information on. The, the book is called The Wisdom of Solomon. Most people would, would do not believe it was written by King Solomon, the son of David, but it's called The Wisdom of Solomon. And this is a quote from Wisdom of Solomon. If you have that in your Bibles, you can turn with me to Wisdom of Solomon or otherwise some, some Bibles just call it The Book of Wisdom. It's chapter 11, verses 4 to 9. And actually, in, in Wisdom of Solomon talks quite a bit about the Exodus story, so there's some interesting insights that are in there. Whether you consider this to be uh, inspired scripture or you consider this to be just a very uh, interesting look at, at, at spiritual subjects, I think it's worth considering what it says regardless. So, in... <coughs> Chapter 11 of Wisdom of Solomon, the writer is discussing how God treated the Israelites in contrast to how he treated the Egyptians 
during the whole time of the Exodus story and the wilderness wandering. And I'm going to start reading in verse 4. It says, They thirsted and called upon you, and water was given them from a flinty rock. Now, obviously, this is referring to when the Israelites were in the desert. And a quenching of thirst from hard stone. For through the things by which their enemies were punished, they themselves, when in need, had kindness shown to them. In place of a spring of ever-flowing river, troubled and defiled with blood, in rebuke of the decree to slay the infants, you gave them abundant water unexpectedly, showing through their thirst at that time how you punished their enemies. For when they were tested... Though they were disciplined in mercy, they learned how the ungodly were tormented when judged in wrath. So, um, what what he's saying here, he's making a contrast. He says, God provided for the Israelites in the wilderness by giving them water to drink, but God cursed the Egyptians in contrast by taking away their water and making it undrinkable. So he, he treated them both. He used water to get his message across to two completely different people. And uh, so it's a con- God's using water to teach two, two different lessons here in contrast to each other. Both groups thirsted, and the Lord did something miraculous related to water to each one. So he miraculously answered the thirst of the Israelites in the wilderness by bringing drinkable water from a rock, However, he punished the Egyptians by making the water of their river defiled and undrinkable, turning it into blood. So that's the first point. But the other point that he makes in here that I I found fascinating, it says, the Lord turned the river of Egypt to blood in rebuke of the decree to slay the infants. So, why did God turn the river to blood as the first plague? He was teaching the, the Egyptians a lesson. The, the edict that was made back in Exodus 1.22, the Pharaoh made an edict, take all the Hebrew babies and throw them into the river. And so God, 80 years later, shuts down the river and turns it blood red as back payment for what they had done in their wickedness to the Israelite babies, to the Hebrew babies. So I thought, wow, that's that's a that's a pretty powerful connection. Um, so this is God's justice, and uh, you know, God, God is a just God. He pays people back, and he does it. He does it in his own totally appropriate way. He does it in his own time too. Sometimes it will take decades. Sometimes it will take hundreds of years. But God always has the last word, and he pays people back for what they've done. No one gets away with anything for the Lord. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. I never would have connected the two, the two together, but that makes perfect sense. I think that's one reason why he would turn the water to blood. Blood red is a reminder of what the, what the Egyptians had done in killing the babies. But I think there's another reason why God chose this miracle. Uh, now, re- recall, we mentioned this a couple of times in this series, that Peter, in Acts chapter 3, he explained to the Jews in Jerusalem shortly after Jesus was resurrected. He's, he's preaching to the Jews in Jerusalem. He said, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things whatever he says to you. That's in Acts chapter 3, 22, where Peter is quoting from Deuteronomy 18, verses 15 to 19. This is the famous prophecy that the Lord would send a prophet like Moses. Now, the whole like Moses thing is really important here. 
And Eusebius is, is a bishop in Caesarea, and he talks about this prophecy and the significance of it. He's writing around the year 320. And he comments about this prophecy that God in the future would send a prophet like Moses. What that means. And Eusebius says, think about this, he says, Moses, by wonderful mercs and miracles, authenticated the religion that he proclaimed. Christ, likewise, using his recorded miracles to inspire faith in those who saw them, established the new discipline of the gospel teaching. And then Eusebius gives several examples of how Jesus performed similar miracles to Moses. There are ones that parallel the other. And then he continues, he says, You'll find other works done by our Savior with greater power than those of Moses, yet resembling the works that Moses did. So he says, you look at the miracles that Moses did, and you'll see that Jesus did very similar miracles, but even greater. So this is the first public miracle that Moses performs, is turning the water into blood. What was the first public miracle that Jesus performed? Okay, that's right. So the first miracle that Jesus performed was at Cana in John chapter 2. And after it, after the, the account of the miracle is given, because we have four Gospels, so who knows which, one, which miracle came first, it says at the end of the story, this was the first miraculous sign that Jesus performed. That's exactly what it says. So there's no question that this was the first one. Let's read John chapter 2, keeping in mind what we just read here. And, and also what Eusebius said. Let's read from John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. I'm reading from New King James Version. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone, according to the manner of purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have drunk well, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This Beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. So, um, it's interesting. Jesus could have just had empty water pots and just, poof, wine appeared inside that. But he didn't do that. He's made a point of saying, fill it with water, and then he miraculously transformed it into wine rather than having just the wine appear from nowhere. So he changed the water into wine at the feast in Cana. And one other detail in the story. It doesn't just say he put the wine into some, some various containers. It made. What do we know about the containers he put it in? It says they were stone water containers. In the story of Exodus... It says not only that the river was turned to blood, but also even the water in the wood and the stone containers was turned into blood. So even the tiniest details in the story, which, which most people would never think or have any significance at all, line up with the story. So I think this is one of the reasons, just like Eusebius said, all the miracles that that uh, Moses did, Jesus did similar miracles, but even greater. Because making drinkable water disgusting is much easier to do than, than making water into 
great wine. This wasn't just the cheap stuff. This, the, the, the steward was impressed. He said, wow, this is, the, this is the really good wine that you provided here. So he made it uh, more than drinkable. He made it excellent. Um, so I think that's another reason why this happened to be the first miracle. It wasn't by chance. Uh, another question. Moses, Moses and Aaron were told to strike the river with the staff. Specifically, they didn't say, you know, just cry out to God, raise your hands up, or uh, or something like that. He says, strike the river with the rod. Why was God so specific about striking the river with his staff? Now we talked in I think the previous lesson about Justin Martyr's dialogue with Trifo, where. He saw so many places in the scriptures that the wood was foreshadowing the cross of Christ. And, and, and the staff is prominent throughout the, the story of Moses in, in the book of Exodus. And I noticed the importance of the staff throughout the Exodus story, particularly when water and wood come together with faith that something extraordinary happens several times. Here in this story in Exodus chapter 7, when the river is struck by the staff in faith, the water is changed into blood. Later on in Exodus chapter 14, when the people are hemmed in by the Red Sea with the Egyptian army approaching, God tells Moses specifically to lift up the staff and uh, cry out to God, and the Red Sea would part with a wall of water on each side. So we see again that faith and the wood are doing something extraordinary to the water. In Exodus chapter 17, when the people cross into the desert wilderness and have nothing to drink, they stumble upon a pool or a lake of water, but the water is undrinkable, it's bitter. And so... He's told, take, take wood, take a tree and throw it into the water and it will become, um, it will become drinkable. And uh, uh, that's, that's in Exodus chapter 16. In Exodus chapter 17, again, they have no water and Moses is told to take his staff and strike the rock. And then water will come miraculously out of the rock in a stream of drinkable water. So, see, examples like this. There are other examples of unusual places in, in Scripture where uh, the wood and faith produces something extraordinary in water. Some examples I think of the story of Noah's Ark as people are saved by wood through the water. Uh, in Genesis 6 to 8, um, it also talks about uh, and, and, and that story in, in Wisdom of Solomon 14 it talks about, there's a whole section in there that talks about the significance of wood in, in Scripture and about how all the bad things that happen with wood where people make idols out of wood. But then it talks about the story of Noah and it says, The hope of the world took refuge in a boat, for the wood was blessed through which righteousness comes. So that's, I mean, I definitely think about the cross. Uh, uh, so many passages in the New Testament that talk about that we're saved, that righteousness comes through the way of the cross, like 1 Peter 2.24. Uh, in the story of Genesis, when we're going through our Genesis series, Jacob builds up an unusual flock of all different types of sheep, different different colors and different markings and things like that. And he's told to do that by taking the peeled branches of wood and sticking them in water. And when then the sheep and the goats mate adjacent to that, this is going to miraculously transform them. So this is the wood and the water and faith working together. And then uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 in, in the Septuagint, it's for, called Fourth Kingdoms. The people are upset because they've lost an iron axe head. And an iron axe head is sunk to the bottom of the river. And so they're told he throws a stick of wood into the river and the axe head miraculously floats. So again, the wood and faith are doing something extraordinary to the water. Now, if the wood 
represents the cross, which is what Justin Margaret was saying. I'll give you three guesses at what water might possibly represent. The water that is changed, that something miraculous happens to or through by the power of faith in the wood. And of course, I think all of us are thinking the same thing as baptism. Uh, Christian baptism is a foreshadowing of that, that we die and are buried with Christ. We're born again. Our sins are forgiven. We receive the Holy Spirit. We're added to the kingdom of God. There's so many things that happen through the water, uh, not because of anything uh, uh, inherent in the water, but it's it's transformed through faith and the wood of the cross. Uh, so just a, a heads up, whenever you're reading in the Old Testament, and you see something unusual happening with wood and water uh, that may be related to that. Faith, wood, and water bringing about something extraordinary. Uh, it's a foreshadowing for us. Um, in preparation for this class, I was reading a book. Uh, I wanted to learn more about Egypt. So I read a book, Israel in Egypt. Okay, right here, this is, this is the book I was reading. Um, I just wanted to find out more about, is there anything more going on in Egypt that would shed light in the story? And I was, I was surprised after reading through the book. Um, it, it didn't add that much to the story, to be honest with you. And I was exposed to all the bizarre theories that are out there in the, re- in the religious world about the book of, um, book of Exodus. And... The author was fairly conservative in terms of believing the inspiration of Scripture, but he was surveying all of the scholarly work that had been done on the book of Exodus. And he said there, there basically there were two camps of scholars. He said, on the one hand, you have the extreme liberal group who, who think that the whole thing is a fable, never took place. Now, why these people are biblical scholars is beyond me. But they say, say this thing never took place. It's a fable. It was made up by the Israelites to explain where they came from and to glorify their past and everything else. There was never any such person as Moses. And so th- those are the extreme liberals on the one hand. Now, on the other hand, you have the more conservative mainstream scholars. And the more conservative scholars, this is the general point of view, he says they believe that the stories in the Exodus, there, there was an Exodus, there was, there, Moses did exist, Israel truly was in Egypt at some point in time and departed from there. However, their position was that the story was embellished over time and it came from multiple sources and it was changed and um, they insist that the story was kind of cobbled together. And the general attitude among even the conservatives is they well, okay, the ten plagues probably did happen, but they probably got embellished somewhat. And, um, and, and they tried to explain the plagues by, by saying that they were related to natural phenomenon. And actually, uh, over 50 years ago, when I was in high school and Catholic school, we were reading through the Bible and we went through Exodus, and this was what I was told in the class. And I was told in the class by the, 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 the brother who was teaching the class, the Christian brother, uh, he, 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 he explained the, the theories that the scholars believe, is that, that like the, the Red Sea, he said, and I grew up in New Jersey, and at the time they had something called the Red Tide, which is, you know, you get an algae bloom that turns red, you can't go swimming, the water's no good. Um, it happens once in a while, certain conditions in the water, and, and, and it just happens. And so I, I grew up at the shore. I said, well, okay, maybe that's it. I said, well, basically, they're, you know, it's either red particles of dirt that got into the Nile River, or more likely it was little uh, uh, microorganisms, little algae or things like that, red algae that got in there. Maybe certain conditions in the river upstream, the water was stagnant or was low or too low, too high, something. And so this is what happened. And I know, I mean, I'm an environmental engineer. I study water quality, water pollution, algae blooms, drinking water, all this. this. So this is, this is a story I'm really excited about because it's all about water. So, okay, so, 
So they're 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 turning that this is the theory is that it's 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 a red algae bloom. And then of course what happens is you have you have too many nutrients in the water and the algae grow, they take off. And then so it, when the sun comes out in the daytime, they uh, produce lots of oxygen. When the sun goes down at night, then the algae have to continue living. So they basically take all the oxygen out of the water. They suck all the oxygen out of the water. When the dissolved oxygen in the water turns to zero, all the fish die in the river. So that's basically that's the problem with algae blooms is at night or when it gets dark out, it's, they consume all the oxygen and everything dies. So this is, so this is the explanation. That the fish, you get the fish die, you get the stink, you get the red color. Okay, so far so good. So they say, all right. And then after that happened, there's a whole ecological chain of events. Somehow that kicked out a lot of frogs. And then the frogs die, and because the frogs are dying and they're stinking, then you have gnats that are breeding on the frogs, and then you know maybe the flies come and they want to eat the gnats. So, but all these things happen, and then oh, and and then you have uh, the ninth plague. It's darkness. So they say, well, maybe it was a dust storm that caused the darkness. So there, there are all these explanations that are given. They're saying yes, something happened, but it can all be explained by. By natural science, so this, these are the conservative. These are supposedly conservative uh, view on the whole thing, kind of kind of mainstream conservative Protestant Bible scholars. So now there's some there's some to me. I'm reading I'm reading this stuff and I'm thinking, you know, there's some problems with with, with these explanations of trying to do this. I'm looking at the story and I'm thinking, okay, not only did the river turn to blood, but also the water in the stone containers and in the wooden buckets and containers, they turn to blood also. I said, you can't, that doesn't happen with the red tide, okay? And all the standing water turned to blood. That doesn't happen with the red tide. So sci- logically, scientifically, that doesn't, that doesn't add up. That doesn't make sense. Um, and the other thing is, you know, there are a lot of people who just don't want to believe the miracles in the Bible. They want to believe the Bible, but they don't want to believe the miracles. And so I see this with people with the New Testament say, well, I'll I'll believe the moral teachings of Jesus. I believe all those things, but the miracles, you know, I I just, I just can't believe that. I can't believe he's resurrected from the dead, fed thousands of people, you know, raised, raised Lazarus from the dead. I don't believe he turned the water into wine. So any of the miracles, they just basically blot out. That's, that's, that's a, a very common position. So the, the people will try to read the Bible and accept the moral foundation there, but negate the miracles in the Bible. And I don't understand how you do that. Jesus started his ministry by changing water into wine. So either he did it or he didn't. And the apostle said he did. The Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. He said beforehand that he was going to do that. Either it happened or didn't. If God can raise Jesus from the dead, changing water into wine is nothing. That's nothing. Okay? Mm-hmm. And if, if Jesus can change water into wine through the power of God, why couldn't Moses turn the water of the river to blood? That's no stretch of the imagination if you understand who God is. The other thing, in Matthew 23, it says, Jesus says, one is your teacher, the Christ. Okay? Jesus is the ultimate teacher. I mean, I don't care how many Bible scholars say otherwise. If Jesus says something, he is the teacher. I'm going to believe what he says. He's the only teacher. Jesus confirmed that Moses was was spoken to by God from the burning bush. Jesus said that. Um, in Luke 20, he's arguing with the Jews. He says, Even Moses showed in the burning bush passage that the dead are raised when he called the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So Jesus says that God spoke to Moses from the burning bush. And in uh, Mark chapter 12, he blasts the, the Sadducees. He says, you're mistaken. You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. You don't understand the scriptures, the power of God. Jesus' attitude was, 
God can do anything. Don't minimize the power of God. He can raise the dead. Uh, and then he, he quotes from Moses in the burning bush passage. And he says that God spoke to Moses there. And he said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So he, he definitely backed that out himself. Jesus accepted that Moses wrote the, the five books. Uh, in John 5, 46, he said, If you believe Moses, you'd believe me because he wrote about me. So Jesus says that Moses wrote the, 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 this book that we're reading in Exodus. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter began to preach and laid the foundation for the church at Pentecost, he started in this way in Acts 2.22. Preaching the Jews in Pentecost says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. So that's, that's where he started. He said, look, he said, Jesus worked miraculous signs. You all know that. You don't understand that God raised him from the dead, but you know he worked miracles. And he's talking to people who are skeptical. But that was the foundation. Stephen says the same thing about Moses in Acts chapter 7 when he's talking to the Jews. It says that Stephen was filled by the Holy Spirit and spoke of Moses that he says, Stephen said he brought them out after he had shown wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. So Stephen's speaking by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says Moses showed miraculous signs and wonders just like Jesus did. So uh, you can't pick and choose and say, well, I'll accept the moral teachings, but I have to have some, some uh, 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 explanation in, current, in, in, in accord with, the, with the, the current operations of science. God created the laws of the universe, the laws of physics and chemistry and biology. He can change them anytime he wants to. So for God to perform a miracle takes, takes no faith on my part. So this, this red tide, you know, sandstorm uh, causing the darkness and, uh, the, you know, the gnats coming out of the dead frog piles uh, argument just doesn't cut it, okay, based on what Jesus said and what the inspired apostles tell us. Uh, you, you think about the details of these stories. You know, one, one of the things I heard was, well, the crossing of the Red Sea was probably really shallow there, and it was, uh, you know, it was low tide, and, and uh, the wind was blowing the water down, and you know, you know how when the wind blows that the water can become lower, and then the Israel's uh, the Israelites uh, wandered across that way. Well, okay, but how did the entire Egyptian army drown in the shallow waters that the Israelites waded across? It doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense if you look at the details of the story. Uh, and then, of course, the the whole story of the Passover. How does God, you know, how how do you have a, a, a an explanation based on science of the oldest child in every single Egyptian household being killed, but in none of the Israelite households? You just you can't get there. You can't get there. Uh, I wanted to I mentioned you know my background is environmental engineering, water quality. So uh, uh, you know I I, I can. Uh, I see there's another dimension in the story that I see here. One of the things that Adam mentioned earlier about why uh, God would strike the water first is because this is a desert and they're completely dependent on water. I'm reminded of a story that I was told. I worked for a company once where some of the engineers had been working over in Egypt and they were... Um, they were working in Egypt, you know, the language is Arabic, and so one of the engineers told me that he was wandering around by the irrigation canals in Egypt, and one of the farmers saw this stranger, an American, looking at his irrigation ditches, and he was, I think, ready to kill them. He had a pitchfork, and he was going after the guy, and he was just it's like, don't mess with my irrigation ditch because this is my life livelihood right here. And fortunately, my, my engineering friend uh, knew very few Arabic phrases, but one of the phrases he did know how to say was, 
water engineer in Arabic. So he said, I'm a water engineer. That's all he could say. And the guy just stopped, bowed down to the ground. And his attitude was, listen, you're a water engineer. Please have mercy on me. It's a desert country. So just reinforce the idea that uh, the water is uh, ultra critical in desert climates. Um, um, you know, the other thing I notice is an environmental engineer, you don't get you don't get the red tide in water buckets. You get it maybe in a lake or a river or something like that, but it doesn't show up in the in the uh, in the water containers. The other thing I, I appreciate as an environmental engineer, because I'm involved in water treatment where I take water that is no good to drink and I make it potable or drinkable. I design of design drinking water treatment plants. And so one of the st- parts of the story here I thought was fascinating was it says, you know, this. This uh, blood water situation was going on for seven days. But you have no water for seven days. Everybody's going to die, right? That's you, you can't live in the desert for seven days with no water. But what does it say that they do? It says the people dug alongside the edge of the river and got water that way. Well, that from, from the perspective of, of a water treatment engineer, that makes total sense. That makes perfect sense because... One of the classic ways of treatment of water is called a slow sand filter. And basically, you take dirty water and you put it through sand, a sand filter, the right type of sand, and it comes out clean on the other side. This is one of the best ways. I think slow sand filter, I think the city of Paris in France, they still use this technology, so it works. It's it's low-tech, but it really works. And so that's what the people did. You know, it's, it's a sandy area. They're digging along the side of the river. So the groundwater from the river goes down under, gets filtered out by the sand and comes out of these ditches. So the surface water is polluted, but they're, so they're using a, a basically a sand filter system. So to me, this is very, very realistic detail in the story. Let's continue here. The, the next plague is the plague of frogs. And let's read Exodus chapter 7, verse 26. Now the Lord spoke to Moses, go to Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go to serve me. But if you let them go, behold, I will smite all your territory with frogs. If you refuse to let let them go, I'll smite all your territory with frogs. So the rivers shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into your house, into your bedroom, on your bed into the houses of your servants, on your people, into your ovens, and into your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you, your people, and all your servants. Again, the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, your brother, stretch out your hand with your rod over the rivers, the canals, the pools, and cause frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, Frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. The sorcerers did the same thing with their sorceries and brought up frogs on the land of Egypt. Pharaoh then called for Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord for me. Let him take away the frogs from me and let my people go. And I will let the people go and sacrifice to the Lord. Moses replied to Pharaoh, Appoint me a time when I shall pray for you. For your servants and your people to make the frogs disappear from you, your people, and your houses. Only in the river will they remain. So Pharaoh said, tomorrow. Moses then said, let it be according to your word that you may know this is none other than the Lord. Now the frogs shall depart from you, your houses, your servants, and your people. They shall remain in the river only. Then Moses and Aaron departed from Pharaoh. Moses cried out to the Lord about the time he had agreed to concerning the frogs he brought against Pharaoh. So the Lord did just as Moses said, and the frogs died away from the houses and villages and the fields. Then they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, his heart was hardened, and he did not heed them. As the Lord said. So, 
This is disgusting. Frogs everywhere. I mean, it's very graphic. He says, he says, the frogs will be in your bedrooms, on your beds, in your storage areas, in your kneading troughs. You know, you're, you're, you're kneading the, the dough to make bread. There are going to be frogs jumping in, in there. Uh, you're, you're putting the bread in the oven. There are going to be frogs in the oven. They're going to be in the fields. They're going to be in your houses. The land is going to be covered with frogs. Uh, the, the language here is uh, uh, rather graphic. Literally, it says that the river is vomiting up frogs. It's the same word for, for vomit. The river is just belching these frogs out. So it's just a t- horrible situation. Somehow the Egyptian sorcerers can do this, the same thing by trickery or whatever. And then uh, Pharaoh, this is, it, this is totally different than the first plague. The first plague, Pharaoh blows it off. This plague here, Pharaoh seems to throw in the towel. He says, look, just get me Moses here. I can't handle all these frogs. There are frogs everywhere. I mean, just, just imagine what that would be like. Frogs are kind of, most people would consider frogs, right? I, I liked catching frogs as a kid, but, but frogs everywhere in the house. You know, just imagine opening the refrigerator, frogs are jumping out. And opening the oven, frogs are jumping out. Going to your bedroom in the closet, pulling the covers back, and there are frogs everywhere. This is disgusting. So Pharaoh can't handle the frogs. And he calls for Moses and basically says, look, I'll do whatever you want. You people want to go, Joe, just get rid of the frogs. And you can do, I'll, I will do whatever you want. So he promises to let him go. And Moses, I love Moses' answer. He says, he said, will you please, please, please pray to the Lord for me to get rid of these frogs. And so Moses says, say when. Say when. You tell me. You pick the time. You want me to pray. And then Pharaoh gives a rather puzzling answer. You know what I would have said? Now. Now. How about how about five minutes ago? How about yesterday? Okay? But Pharaoh says uh, tomorrow. Pharaoh says tomorrow. I'm thinking, what's with that? And um, so the frogs die and they're these stinking piles of frogs uh, that are left over. Uh, They remain only in the river. But then, when Pharaoh is relieved from the frogs, his heart is hardened. He reneges on his promise to let the people go, and he won't let them go. After he said he was going to let them go. You know, get rid of the frogs, you can go. They get rid of the frogs, Pharaoh says, oh, change my mind. (laughs) So, uh, anything new in this second plague from the first plague? Well, I think for me, the big new thing there is Pharaoh finally seems to believe the Lord. He calls for Moses and asks Moses, pray to the Lord to get these frogs out of here. So, so he believe, at this point in time, he believes Moses. He believes God and he's desperate. So this is a total change in Pharaoh's heart from anything we've seen before, the other miraculous signs. And he says he's willing to let the Israelites go. That's a first. But we also see the character of Pharaoh. He doesn't keep his promises. He's Mr. Bait and Switch. All right? His word is useless. It's meaningless. It doesn't mean anything. His yes does not mean yes. Like Satan, he is a liar. Jesus said Satan was a liar and the father of lies. Pharaoh's just like this. He's a complete liar. He'll say whatever, whatever he needs to get off the hook temporarily. He's a liar. He holds out empty promises for people. So I want to go back to the question that, 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 that was puzzling me before. When Moses asked Pharaoh, when do you want me to get rid of the frogs? When do you want me to pray, pray to the Lord? You tell me the exact time and I'll do that. And, 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 and Pharaoh says tomorrow. So Moses waits till the next day and prays at exactly that time. And that's when, the, that's when the frogs leave. Because this is going to be another sign from God that they'll leave exactly when he prayed for them to leave. And it, remind, it probably reminds Allison too. There's, you know, uh, many, many years ago, there was a, a preacher who uh, told me how he would use this story. If somebody knew that they needed, that they were lost, and they needed to repent, and they needed to be baptized. If somebody realized that, when he that he was sharing his faith and studying the scriptures with them, and uh, the person said, "Well, are you ready to do that?" I said, "Well, I like to wait a little while. I'm not quite ready yet." And his line, 
back to them. He'd read this story to them, and he said, do you want to spend another night with the frogs? <laughs> okay. This is, just imagine what it was like for Pharaoh. He goes to bed that night, and there's still frogs everywhere in the bed. It's like, you, want to spend, you really want to spend another night with the frogs? That's, that's, he used that line, my friend would use that line in convicting people, look, if you're going to repent, do it now. Don't wait around. Don't put it off. I mean, I think about so many people in the scriptures that had good hearts. When they were convicted, it was now. They didn't wait around. You know, Zacchaeus said, look, Lord, he turned it in right now. I'm, I'm giving half my goods to the poor. If I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restored fourfold. So he basically, he basically did an about face, 180 degree turn right on the spot. He wasn't waiting around. The Ethiopian eunuch who was seeking God, when he travels along and Philip is explaining the message, he says, look, here's water. Why can't I be baptized? Let's stop the chariot. I want to deal with it right now. I'm not going to put it off. Or the Philippian jailer in the middle of the night who calls for lights and says, what do I need to do to be saved? He says, this this." this this man is from God. What do I need to do to be saved? And he's baptized uh, right there. He and his family are, are baptized that night. Um, I think what Paul said about godly sorrow, this, if somebody has godly sorrow, if they're cut to the heart, it produces indignation and alarm and a vehement desire to clear yourself before God. So but I would ask for any of us, you know, <clears throat> Is there something in your life that you're convicted about that God wants you to change? Okay. Is your attitude the same of Pharaoh? Tomorrow, when I get around to it, I want to hang on to, I want to hang on to my sin. I want to hang on to my whatever it is that I'm hanging on to. I don't want to deal with it. Do you want to spend another night with the frogs? Or do you want to get rid of them now? Because Moses said, your choice, your call. You'll call, Pharaoh. Very respectful. So I think a, a, a powerful lesson for us. If you want to deal with something and change, let's just do it right away. Well, I think what I'm going to do is just stop there for now. We'll continue with the uh, the, the, the further plagues in the next lesson on Sunday. Thank you.